Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. We've all heard the saying that change is hard, but change is a lot more than hard. Change can be threatening. Change is inevitable. Change can be welcome and unwelcome. Change is a lot of different things. And one of the things that change is, is impossible to stop. Change takes place naturally no matter if we want it to happen or don't want it to happen. And one of the big challenges with change is that change can happen with us changing with it. When change happens, when we fail to change, when we fail to make changes with the larger changes that are taking place, then what was once familiar can now feel really foreign. Where before we might have felt like we belonged, now we can feel completely out of place. Uh, when I go back to Detroit, Michigan, for instance, uh, Detroit's changed quite a bit. For, for me, it's always been that place that I left. And so while it changed, in my mind, it never changed. And now I'm out of step with the place that I grew up and where I really had all my formative years. And these outcomes can be especially true when change is really rapid and really sudden, as well as something that we are not wanting to see happen. As a sociologist, we study social change and we see situations like the pandemic where change was seemed all of a sudden and people had a really hard time with it and people felt like they needed to catch up to it. And then trying to change things back to the way they were, but can they ever be the way they were before? Or have we passed that moment and into a new moment that we really have to come to terms with? We can even see people rebelling against that change in terms of pronoun usage or rights for different groups of people or ways that we talk about different things or terms that are no longer acceptable. That these changes become hard to track and deal with, especially when they feel so overwhelming and so unexpected and unknown. The workplace, at a smaller level, has been undergoing tremendous change as well. As I mentioned, from COVID and the whole work-from-home movement, to the rise of global teams and taking meetings at hours of the day, to technological transformation, mergers and acquisitions, the whole discussion between shareholders and stakeholders, much has been discussed in terms of how work and organizations should change, have changed, and need to change. And if change is threatening and scary, if it's something that people try to avoid, raises the question, how do we make it less threatening, less scary, something that people welcome? And how do we get structures to change that have for a long time resisted those change? How do we make change possible in a situation where change is strongly resisted? Yeah, I mean, that's an, I think it's such an important series of questions and what that stems from too, it seems is, is, as you're noting there, that there's a way of dealing with change as people and dealing with them as organizations. And we have to be able to address both of these. Uh, and so we're really excited to invite, introduce into the Experience by Design Studios today, Paul Terwal, who started a consulting company called Team Andare. And he's going to help us walk through a lot of these issues in terms of how we can address and think about change. And what we'll be discussing is how we can keep the human kind of at the center of an organization. So when we're dealing with change, we remember that we're not just shifting structures, but we're shifting how people experience the world themselves and, and work. And what this could mean is things like viewing an organization as a group of human beings versus, you know, people as a human resources problem that we want to outsource, but also things like we're exploring mind uh, mindset shifts where companies can optimize working environments for employees. So not just about making the most kind of efficient uh, or quiet space necessarily, or even an open floor plan, but thinking about what does it mean to have an environment that uh, lends towards the well-being of employees. And a big part of Paul's work is how we use positive psychology towards creating a sense of place and a sense of purpose in organizations. Now, this is interesting because his approach involves facilitating people to do work rather than trying to manage them. And so I don't know if, if you've ever had a manager that talks down to you or doesn't provide the most uh, open lines of communication or, or but um, I imagine most of us have, and it's it's not great. 
So thinking about this idea of how do we facilitate versus manage? And rather than thinking about change as a goal to kind of get to this major theme we're, we're talking through here, we can approach this as the idea of develop something that people do naturally uh, and something that organizations and structures can also do naturally. Uh, and so rather than saying, how do we enforce, enact, make a change? How do we develop things across the trajectory that would be most beneficial for, for the broader group? And part of this is thinking human scale, right? Taking it slow, one step at a time can actually lead to organizations and people moving in entirely new directions uh, because they have more human scale achievable goals. And developing also sounds more like a natural and welcome to process rather than something that, that's abrupt. And so change can feel kind of quick and scary. Development has an element of time as part of that. So the, the bigger idea is that by helping to support people in the organizations, the organizations will also themselves benefit in the long run. And lest I forget, we also did talk about the fact that Gen X is the forgotten generation. It's a great conversation. We're super excited to dive into it about change, development, positive psychology, and why Gen X keeps getting forgotten. So why? without further ado- why, why does this happen? Why? Why? <laughs> That's the question. Stop forgetting me. Yeah. I'm right here. Remember, remember Gary.com. Remember Hashtag. Gen X. Never forget Gen X. <laughs> Next, yes. Let us remember. Um, and with that, we'll talk about them right after this. Then that's that's it's safer. Yeah, I was just going to say maybe you can talk to Adam about being self-employed because uh, he's just ventured back into that world of self-employment. It is it is more open, yeah. you know, which is which is a nice thing. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, different battles to fight, right? You know, absolutely. So, how bad is the employee experience if you're self-employed? Is it better? Is it worse? No, you you can make it better for yourself. <laughs> Is that uh, the hardest person to make it better for, though? That's what I find, at least. I mean, uh, and the employee, right? Yeah, yeah. So make it easy for yourself. That's that's the most important thing. Sometimes just say no, and, and that's nice, too. Was that a hard thing to kind of figure out, being self-employed, was saying no to things? Yeah, because sometimes it's about, on the one hand, having fun. And on the other end, getting money. And sometimes you need the money, so you do a, a job that you think, nah, normally I wouldn't do it. And you need to learn to say no. But then sometimes you have a contract, you're bound to that contract, so you need to be careful what to do and what to say. But most of the time, it works nice. Being in academia, it's been interesting to see how many people are looking to consulting as a panacea for their academic woes. And I do consulting, I do academic work, so I'm kind of in both, but it's always interesting when I hear people who would, are in academia to say, I'm going to go do consulting because um, that seems like a better work-life balance and I'll have control over my life more. And I'm like, I don't know if that's entirely true because the consultants nah, I know. It's, it, no, it's not always true, but sometimes it feels that you're more in control. And you need to fight with yourself instead of with a, with a company. And that's, that's good as well. So, nah, I like it. I don't want to change it. So what, what, what precipitated your desire to go from self-employed? So were you working in, in kind of corporate world before? And then you, you figured out that it made more sense in terms of your either lifestyle goals or career goals. Like what, what made that choice? Uh, part of your uh I, I was working uh, many years for uh, public social security offices. Uh, then I worked for Capgemini. So that was IT and consultancy. Then I went uh, into an interim role. And then one of my customers asked me to work for them as a consultant. And they asked me, but we want you to uh, make your own company. So that you're really independent and not looking at, oh, I need to earn this. And then they gave me, uh, we would say now, $100,000 upfront and said, this is what we are going to pay you in the first year. And that made life easy to say, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I went to an accountant, a financial advisor, what is 100,000K uh, or 100K? 
how much can I do with it? And, and he said, well, this, this is a safe start for somebody who wants to be an independent consultant. So that made my life easy and happy. And hey, I was 37 by then. So it, mm. it was, I think, too young. Um, but on the other hand, uh, never regretted it. So mm. that's interesting too. And it's nice that, that like thinking about, uh, especially if folks are considering this back and forth, you know, whether, whether it's to go into consulting from academia or to go from, from being employed into being self-employed, uh, in, in the industry sector that clients can also precipitate that movement, right? So that's interesting to know yeah. where clients kind of gave you that, that move. Um, cause a lot of folks we talk with, if they're doing this, they, they kind of decided to make the shift versus, they had a, a bridge pre-built. So that's actually a good, a good thing to think about. If we think about employee experience for the employee of, of oneself, um, if you can make the transition with employees, uh, with clients, yeah. uh, that yeah. can make the pathway much, much more fruitful. That's 10 times easier. Hmm. Yeah. Easy pathways are a-okay, I think. Yeah. With, you know, moving into this employee experience space that you work so frequently in, have you found that even across Europe, the concept of the relationship between the organization and the employee is different. I think about this from an American perspective where previously there's the idea that the, the, the chief responsibility of the CEO is to maximize uh, shareholder value, right? There's, or, you know, I, it's a transactional relationship that I exchange my labor value for my wage to use kind of Marxian terms. You know, from a European perspective and even getting more granular from a different nationality perspective, is it that different or is it similar? Uh, to be honest, I think most of the time it's similar because um, a lot of the big companies in the Netherlands are US based. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of big companies, even supermarkets who focus entirely on shareholder value. But hmm. with the change in the labor market from a demographic view, uh, we see now more that employees are more demanding. Uh, they are stronger than they were. You can't fire people that easy in Europe. Uh, so you more stick to legal rules to, to fire anybody, uh, which isn't always easy, even if you should fire them. So it gives the employees more power and they are more looking for purpose, uh, stakeholders than shareholders. So there is sometimes a conflict in Europe. And we call it the Rhineland model that's based on the River Rhine, uh, Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, a little bit of France, which is more based on a horizontal approach. The CEO is the chief facilitator instead of the CEO only paying attention to the shareholders. So, yeah, we, we see a change, but companies like Shell, Unilever, they were based in the Netherlands and they were 100% Anglo-Saxon, so American organized. Then the Dutch government said, we need to change it. We have to look at the employee experience. We need to look at the environment. We need to look at sustainability. And they left the Netherlands for the UK because they are still based on shareholder value. So I see... With the more demographic power of employees, I see it shift from only shareholder value into more stakeholder value. Um, and I think that's wise. It's interesting that, you know, you don't want to be the company that's the race to the bottom. We're going to go, we're going to leave someplace that's trying to emphasize employee experience and go to your country that doesn't. And when we think about this concept of the race to the bottom that's been around in development um, work. Yep. That, you know, where's the, where's the, the cheapest place to, in terms of wages, the fewer environmental controls, uh, the less unionization or the worst or the non policy based employee experience company, you know, global capital will move globally to seek the best conditions for itself. And so you end up moving to a country that doesn't have policies in place to amplify employee experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it will be a problem in, in time because you won't find qualified employees anymore that accept that kind of behavior. 
Um, of course, you can go to Africa and say, oh, let's uh, base our company in Africa because enough employees, uh, no policies in, in place. Uh, they love a shareholder value. But I was in Africa a couple of weeks ago, and I see that the people there are much more focused on the European way of working than on the American way of working. So even if they don't have policies by the state in place, still the people are looking at it at a different way. So you need to find those employees that are highly qualified, that are willing to work for you, and I think it will be much more difficult for those companies to survive. On the other hand, if you look at all the international research, and you know it as well, that if you take care of your employees, they will take care of your profitability. So, yeah, I'm not sure there is only one way that will succeed, but there will be some sort of mixture between what's going on in, in America, the UK, Singapore, and what's happening in Europe now. So it, it, it will, influence will be more hybrid. Uh, of course, shareholders are important, but the stakeholders will decide whether you survive or not. Hmm. Now, that's interesting because it's, it's one of the questions too, as we think about more globalized workforces and whether it, it's like a like distributed globalized work uh, remote remote set of teams, or if it is uh, a corporation with offices in, in multiple parts of the world, um, even like you know Meta, where they they have their tax offices in Dublin, but then they have like their headquarters in Menlo Park in California. So there's the interesting back and forth about this. So I'm, I'm curious in in your perspective, or if you've seen in some of your work too, that there is the the shift. You know, I think there's probably a narrative that the the kind of U.S. American model is pushing, right? The, the the shareholder value as we're seeing here versus stakeholder. But I mean, to your point, and I hear what you're saying there, where that there is uh, really your stakeholders are what you can live and die on at the end of the day. And, and so, do you see that that push where there is kind of a, a a viable force against the like stakeholder or shareholder model, the American model being the most quote unquote important? Oh yeah, I, I, I see it happening right right now in the Netherlands. You you see environmental uh, companies and Extinction Rebellion buying mm. shares of companies, and then go to the shareholder meeting and just tell them shut up, be mm. more careful for our environment. So your shareholders can be the same who are, were your stakeholders and are now influencing it. And it was in the newspaper, one of the big supermarkets said, well, well we don't care about environment. Well, people told them differently in the shareholder meeting. So you see it changing. You can say, oh, I can go everywhere. And then you see those supermarkets are based in a local area. And if the people say, then I will walk to another supermarket who is taking care of shareholder value, then you will see that you will lose your income. So you need to take care, who are your clients? And it's the clients that determine whether you are successful or not. And if the employees don't like you anymore, they will move somewhere else, uh, especially the young generation. Um, uh, I saw uh, Harvard is publishing Mind Your Gap, and that's about Generation X and Z not communicating with one another. And if you don't mind that gap, you will lose those people. And to be honest, a lot of people in the C-suite are still Generation X, and they have the traditional way of this is the way Taylor did it, and McKinsey told us to do it, and we will stick to it. And now you see that the young employees say, well, good luck. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move to another place where they take care of me and my purpose. So I think the employees and the clients will change their traditional focus on shareholder value. And again, if you take care of your employees and they take care of your clients, your profitability will go up. So shareholder will, your value will go up. So it's a question, is it the one or the other, or do we need to find a hybrid, hybrid force that can work together and see, well, take care of them 
And that's what I always see when, when I look at Gallup or that kind of uh, research, that the hybrid way of looking at uh, shareholders, stakeholders, that will work the best. There is a really famous example here in New England around, you were mentioning um, a supermarket called Market Basket, where it was a family-owned business, privately owned. And one of the brothers, one of the cousins wanted to actually sell it to a, a company, a private capital company in Europe, which would probably then like take this shareholder value approach. The other brother wanted to keep it more of a stakeholder value approach. And the brother who wanted the stakeholder approach was forced off the board by the other cousin. And not the workers went on strike, the customers went on strike. The customers literally, and there's a great book called We Are Market Basket, where the cost and the suppliers yeah. kind of went on strike and they shut the, you've never seen anything like it. People stopped shopping at Market yeah. Basket because of the role it played in the community and providing people pathways to professions yeah. and opportunity. And it was, it was quite remarkable to see all of this happening because you never see customers going on strike. No. Yeah. No, but I, I think that will be the new attitude in the market. Um, uh, we we had some documentary uh, lately about uh, the company called Philips. You, you know it. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It was for more than 100 years owned by the family Philips. And then in, in the 60s, they decided to sell it to uh, private investors and it changed and see what it is now. But if you look at all the companies that were created by Philips, ASML, and all that kind of world-known companies, they started by Philips because it was a family who said, let's see how we can evolve. Then it became uh, a private investment company, and now it's, well... It's still there, but if you buy a television from Philips, it's not made by Philips anymore. They bought the name. They sold the name to uh, Korean and Japanese companies. So in the Netherlands, it was famous in Eindhoven because it created the whole city, including uh, a football team right. called PSV. Um, now PSV is owned by others. And it hasn't got that feeling anymore of a family started business. So I think the world is changing. Um, I, I think customers will go on strike, like you said, uh, or employees. Uh, they, they want to. I, I talked to a guy yesterday and he, he is 24 years old and he told his boss, who happens to be his father, um, are you taking care of me and my children or are you only looking for your own money? Mm. And then the father said, well, I'm working for you. And he said, then don't. I can work for myself and I want to have a future for myself and my kids. And you mm. see that difference in generations. And we can't stop it anymore because those younger ones are coming in and taking over within five or ten years. Those darn kids. Speaking yeah. It's a person who has darn kids. They, uh, they tend, they tend to think for themselves, no matter how much we try to uh, have us think for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think they are doing a better job than we did. And I'm not blaming generation X or the baby boomers for what they did, because we came out of a world war and we had to do something to get well-being. But now, we have that state of well-being and suddenly those young kids think about sustainability. And we were still focused on money because we said, work hard, be successful, and you will be happy. Now it's be happy, work hard, you will be successful. So the whole culture is changing and I think in a good way. I'm just happy you're mentioning Generation X. I think this is the most Generation X has ever been mentioned because we're usually forgotten. People just yeah. go straight from baby boomers to millennials. We're like, hey, there's like a whole yeah, bunch of I, us. I, yeah, I, I'm an Xer as well. Hey, hey, I'm still there. Uh, yeah, silent majority. Right. Well, the, the point is, in, in, in the Netherlands, we call uh, Generation X the forgotten 
generation because mm. when we went to the labor market early 80s oh uh yeah i'm back um when we came in in the early 80s there was so much unemployment that a lot of us didn't find a job and mm. and suddenly in the midst of the 80s 50% of generation x was unemployed right so we were the forgotten generation and then the millennials came and baby boomers left and they jumped in that position. And you're right. Um, if generation X will listen more to millennials and generation Z, we will have a better future. I mean, that, that's an interesting piece because this is uh, something. So, you know, Gary, Gary teaches, I've, I've taught for a number of years too. And, and obviously, so all of our students uh, at, at best, you know, we're at some point, the the elder millennials and now into into Gen Z is like solidly where where all students are and, and you know we're not quite at alpha yet we got to get a few years till they get to college level but this it's an interesting question in terms of where and when we see those voices entering the workforce and then to your point like what are the shifts in organizational culture and it's I'm curious to think about this too because it's like we we are seeing a bit of butting of heads and cultural differences that are there a bit of generational you know a bit of kind of life stage differences but then also these these moments like sustainability, which is something that uh, Gen Z is the most outspoken generation for in, yeah. in terms of environmental concern, and then also well-being that millennials are catching up to talk about also by saying, hey, wait a minute, we kind of got zinged in the middle of, of Gen X and Gen Z here for a second and like lost a lost 10 years because of uh, in the US, you know, housing crisis and, and job loss also. And so there's this interesting kind of push. So uh, I'm curious to think about, you know, when you're working with an organization and, and how we can bring these conversations, do, do folks come to you with the problem by saying, Hey, we have a culture clash or do they come with you saying we're having a profit problem. And then we can die. Then perhaps you can diagnose it as a culture problem. Like where do you see the, the kind of when people enter into the problem saying, we're trying to figure out our employee experience. Like how do they, how do they come to you? Uh, I think it's most of the time, the culture clash, uh, they say we have a cultural problem in our organization. Um, meaning there is a gap between the different generations. Um, what I see, especially in the, in the Netherlands, but in Belgium, Germany uh, as well, if people are unhappy with what they're doing, they call it sick. So absenteeism is a big issue. And especially in the Netherlands where you get two years, one year, 100% of your income and the second year, 70%. So the employer is still financially responsible for you and you're not working. So. Mm. Sick leave after COVID went up to eight, nine percent, and not only in healthcare but in production companies as well. And and then suddenly you see that people say, "Yeah, but they're not medically ill, but it is a mm -hmm. mental issue, and we need to work on that." And then they call it cultural. We get in and we do a DNA analysis, and we have tools to find out what's going on in your organization. And of course, they know that profit goes down. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the short term uh, problem is sick leave and the cultural gaps that they see. And that's what we focus on and how we can help. Uh, I think the big uh, consultancy first, like KPMG, EY, they will come for the financial part and do that financial analysis. That's not our topic. I stay away mm. from it because for me, that's the outcome of mm. the whole situation. And I'm not going to tell you how to fix that outcome. I'm going to look how do people behave in your organization? What are the unwritten ground rules within your organization? Why engagement is going down? Mm. Because it's connected to engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I think an important piece to, to even also be able to articulate that distinction that um, profit as a longer term fixed problem, you know, but really it's the fundamental is actually human behavior, right? In, in psychology and, and what's happening in here, pointing to myself, if you're listening to this yeah. um, mm -hmm. and diagnosing that versus versus saying, well, we got to, you know, fix, fix your KPIs. You're like, that's not the, that's not the problem necessarily, right? No, that's the KPI, no, it's me. Yeah, that, I, I think what we do a lot is, of course, we look at KPIs uh, and also the financial ones, but we also look at the critical success factors. Mm. Because 
if a human being is not working in a good way, then he won't get to the KPIs. Mm -hmm. So the problem is that we still talk about human resources instead of human beings. Yeah. And even Minsberg changed his whole behavior from structures in five. No, we have to look at an organization as a group of human beings working together on the same goals. So determine the goals and then see how human beings can perform to make the profit coming. And I think that's, that's a big change. And with the help of positive psychology, that's what we try to do to get people in that mode that they look at energy resources and that we have them in a positive mindset that they are engaged and they will have much more productivity, less mistakes, more um, uh, effectiveness and that kind of stuff. So I think that with Generation Z asking to the boss, hey, what can you do for me instead of what we did? How can I serve you? Um, now uh, the transaction is reversed that uh, my son asked his company, and that's the tax authority in the Netherlands, what can you do for me in the coming three years? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, that's a new question for us. He said, no. It's not a new question. You never answered it. So, and of course, I trained him over the years, but uh, it, it's, it's a different mindset that people say, I come and work for your organization. Be happy that I'm here. And what can you do for me? And that's not only about money. It's about mm -hmm. purpose. It's about uh, being connected. It's about autonomy, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so they have a a broader perspective of work than what we had when we started. I started and it was for me income. Then I can right. live, I can buy my house, I can go on holiday because I couldn't when I was young and now I can and I can go twice a year. Now they go three times a year and ask the company, how can you support me to make this world ready for me? Mm. And I like it. I must say, I don't blame them. It's it's a new perspective uh, for the older generations. When when I teach a class on employee experience, when talking to my students about the difference between employee engagement and employee experience, I just say employee engagement is about optimizing the worker for the company. Employee experience is about optimizing the company for the worker. Yeah. It goes back to this flipping of the mindset, right? Yeah. You know, the critical success factors or the KPIs are usually written from a company's perspective, much like yeah. if I'm teaching a class, my learning outcomes are written from my perspective, what I think the student should be achieving or getting out of it. Far less often is asking the students, what is success to you? What does it look yeah. like? What are you looking for? And when you ask them, it does give you a different insight into the experiential opportunities that are available in terms of how we yeah. design these these environments yeah and i i i love that way of thinking because um, some call it even a paradigm shift i don't right. think it's that strong because it's coming through the years um companies like Sappos in in the us work this way um and they are part of uh, of a big uh, multinational amazon um it's, I think it's a new way of looking at human beings within organization and optimizing their situation in a way that they are much more productive. And that's why I called it in my book, The Seven Keys of Talent Management and Engagement. Um, and when I wrote my book and did a lot of research internationally, I found out that there weren't 16 keys, but uh, seven, but 16. Hmm. So there are much more topics in which you can see that if people are more engaged and more focused on well-being, that the outcome will be much broader than, than we thought. But uh, we see if people are engaged in the Netherlands and Western Europe, sick leave goes down with 40%. Well, hmm. an employee costs about 400 euros a day if they don't work. So if they work, it's 10 times better for you as an organization. So invest in them. 
And that's the change that we see here, and I hope in the U.S. as well. Have you found that um, one of the challenges that we've seen in, in this space is, you know, you, you mentioned absenteeism um, as, as a common practice that people will just stop coming to work or say, I'm, I'm in sick. And so similarly, like in the U.S., we have often seen that people get dissatisfied with the work environment, whether it's whether it's their co-employees or their managers or their scenario, and then they will begin to disengage, right? Like yeah. there's the the horrifying term quiet quitting, which is total yeah. crap. But like, but the other idea just in terms of like I'm gonna, I'm gonna become disengaged. Um it's, it's interesting because what I'm kind of wrestling with here is one of the the challenges that uh, for employees who feel disengaged, they may either not feel empowered to to tell management that we have a problem yeah. and or their plan is to just disengage till they leave. Which is also not great. And so, so how do we think about that? That like, how do we encourage or, or you know, how do we kind of open up those those channels of conversation for organizations with employees that should have those conversations but may not may not feel comfortable doing so? Well, I see a lot that managers, and I call them managers because they tick the boxes of KPIs. Yep. yep. Um, they don't ask questions. They they tell employees what to do. And then we get disengaged. Uh, then presenteeism starts. I'm there, but I'm not productive. And then people leave. And quiet quitting is 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 not true because they will make a lot of noise when they leave. <laughs> and there won't be an ambassador of your company uh, when they have a drink with their friends and say, "Well, that company is ah." Uh, um, so what we need to do is just ask people, how can I support you to be an engaged employee? Mm. What do you need to be happy? Uh, I see that you're not really into the good mood. How can I support you? So it becomes more of telling as a manager what somebody should do. It becomes a leader facilitating and asking how can I support you? The problem is if you ask that question and they give you give you a true answer that you need to fulfill what they ask. Right. So yeah. what we do in organization is create a team of providers, people that can support leadership into getting those people back into well-being. That can be a physiotherapist, a positive psychologist, a coach, a budget coach, uh, a trainer, um, and we're not going to pay them to solve their problem, but we are giving them an opportunity co to communicate. So if somebody is help having financial problem, then you can say, hey, that's your own problem. I'm not going to take care of you. You can also think uh, if I need this employee, uh, I need them to be engaged. How can I support them? Well, send a coach, have four or five conversations, let them take care of what's going on and ask the employee, come back as soon as possible and let's talk about it and let's move on. Hmm. So that means that leaders need to be standing next to those people and commune, uh, communicate in an open way and, and support and facilitate people. And, and I think that's the big change, especially for, uh, for managers who were used to say we have an open door policy, but were in uh, meetings the whole time. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they don't have an open door because they are in teams or in meetings the whole day. I had one this morning who said, I'm fully booked from nine till six. I said, well, then you make a mistake because you're a leader, a director. You need to be there for your employees. You can't be in meetings with equal people. You need to communicate with your employees. And, mm. and I'm surprised that people don't get it, that they are in meetings the whole day just talking and not working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of drives but me I, crazy. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's the reason why I'm not a leader or a manager. I want to work and I don't see that kind of business as work. I, I have been asked at my job to um, be on different committees. I, I, I want to say, no, I'd rather do it than 
talk about it. <laughs> you know, and not not to diminish my wonderful colleagues who sit on committees. Uh, love you, mean it. If any of you are listening to this right now, but at the same time, it's how much time is spent talking about doing versus you know doing and then talking about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then starting with doing versus the, the talking, because you can, and especially academics, you can talk about things, it turns out, for quite a long time yeah. without doing anything. Well, it, I, I, you can say, let's have a meeting and we all stand. We're not sitting. Right. Uh, we're standing at our desk and you have 45 minutes and then we move on. And uh, you will see that within 30, 35 minutes, problem is solved. Right. Because mm-hmm. when we're sitting, we can relax, we can do other stuff, we can look at our phones. And I hate it when I'm in a meeting and somebody's looking at his phone. I always yeah. put it away right. because it distracts me and I, I'm not focused on what is being said. So I think that's part of culture as well, to see yeah. how, how do we organize meetings in a proper way. One of the things I, I, I am really curious about, given your consulting work, but also your professional speaking work, is how do you communicate these messages without necessarily sounding what we would call overly preachy or judgmental? Oh. You know, because it's, it's, you know, you think about professional speakers, you know, there's the inspirational talk, there's the, you know, you can do it kind of thing, or here's how I did it. But this is like, this is what you need to be doing kind of talk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And how do you yeah. balance this message, Ooh. which might be tough love, with being in front of an audience that you don't necessarily want to push away or turn off from what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I heard this morning that one of my big uh, clients, uh, and I haven't spoken with them the last three months because they're busy uh, with uh, a reorganization. And he told my colleague, Paul is quite confronting. So mm. he tells us immediately this is what you're doing, but this is not going to work within your organization. And he said, and Paul needs to be aware at the moment that he needs to step back and let somebody else take over. So that's a a good sign. So, yeah, I can be, and I'm Dutch, so we're quite direct. Uh, We're not going to use 100 words if I can say it in 10. Uh, The Brits tend to use a lot of words, and I need to listen carefully what is your message? So when I'm on stage, um, yeah, I'll, I will start telling what my message will be. And then, of course, I structure it. Uh, but most of the time, I start with a video which explains it all and then tell the people that I'm content-driven and not inspirational. So... Right. And of course, people love what I'm saying. They, they, they love the way I will tell my story because it has a lot of power in it. But I'm not telling them what to do. I'm just showing it that it can be done in another way. And of course, people will be, uh, some will be hurt by it because I give them a slap in the face with my words. And others will say, I always thought this is the way to do it. But Nobody told me before. So, and to be honest, I am who I am, and I want to stay this way. Um, I'm doing my last five, six years of working, and I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to change. This is who I am. This is what you get. Uh, and some will like it, uh, and others won't. Yeah, I think it's an important point. What I've had people say, oh, don't you wish like, you know, you were 20 again? I'm like, oh God, no, that sounds horrible. I'm much happier oh, being where I'm at right now and, and caring less. Not yeah. being, that doesn't mean I don't care at all. It just means I'm less self-conscious about modifying myself to please others. And I think one of the things that you said, which is really interesting, and I wonder about this, people, when they hear your message, when they listen to this podcast or when they hear you speak, they get it. They want to do it. How hard is it, and we're, we're sociology and anthropology here, to change the systemic forces that are impeding people from doing things they know are right and they know are better? And, and changing yeah. that structure. Well, well, one of the things I learned over the last couple of years, I, I'm less using the word change. I call it development. 
Because if you talk about culture change, we're saying it's not okay what you're doing now. Yeah. And if I say we need to develop the culture into a new direction, then I can even use excuses from the outside world to say we need to, to develop into this uh, direction because the world is changing, people are changing, the demands are changing. And I see that people are less worried because it's a development instead of a change. Um, mm. So that's what, what I like to use. It's not talent management, it's talent development. It's not organizational change, it's organizational development. Because mm. I notice that words do matter. If, if you say change, somebody say, oh, oh, there they are again. We need to change again. And if you said, no, we need to develop because this is happening in the world, this is happening in our organization, and that direction could help us, then I might be more willing to support that development. Um, so culture change, for me, culture development will take two, three years. Um, and two of my colleagues from Australia and South Africa use the word unwritten ground rules. Uh, a lot of our culture is not known, is not written down, is the way we do the things around here. And what they do is make it manifest to people, hey, this is, this is what we see. And how can we develop from this unwritten into a written, from a negative into a positive part? And that will take time. But if you call it development instead of change, it makes life easier to, to come with you in that direction. And that's what I love to see. But I tell people, take it slow, do it one step at a time. We can't change the world. We, we are developing in a new direction. Uh, let's make, let's do it step by step. And I, then I use the Camino, the walk, uh, you know, the movie, I think, uh, of Estevan. Uh, I walked the Camino twice. Um, mm. it's 800 kilometers. If I start on day one and I, I'm thinking about the end after 28 days, I won't get there. If I think of making the first step, then I will get to that 500 miles in four weeks because it's one step at a time. And of course, you need to set a point, Santiago, that's where I want to go. But how I get there is not my worries. It's just get walking. One step at a time. And then it's less pressure than what to, when you tell a team, we need to change and we have four months to get there. Mm. Well, I can tell you it will be a failure. And all people are disappointed, disengaged, and they will say, bye-bye, I'm moving. And then you lost. So I think positive psychology can help us to, to get people on the move and keep them engaged in what we're trying to do. I think it raises an interesting question too, that, that changes perhaps the way people approach it too, because if we're thinking about it in terms of development versus change, then uh, yeah, there's, there's an expected set of, of kind of process, but also I, I think it, it changes how people might have patience for the process itself, right? Versus because change both can be scary or abrupt. I mean, development could be quick too, I suppose, but more likely it, it evokes the idea of, of yeah. over time, right? Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting idea too, because it's like often we don't hear the word patience in cultural development. No, no, and I, I'm not an expert in it, but with 40 years of experience in a lot of organizations with a high percentage of sick leave, if I tell, you, tell them we need to change the culture, then they have already in the last five years, four time, a program for culture change. And they all failed. And if you say, okay, let's, let's focus. This is it. This is it. One step of the time. Where do we want to go? What is our roadmap to where we want to go? And what does it need you to make that first step? And of course, still the experts in the development will say, this is where we are and this is where we want to go. But the road won't be a linear. 
uh, line. It will go with all kinds of moves and circles and stepping back. And so make it easy for people to make that first move and then ask them what can be the next step. So then we make the human beings, the employee, responsible to get it to that goal. And, and what we do now is somebody from external will tell us where to go and how to get there in what time. And I think we don't give the autonomy to people to, to make it happen. It's a really interesting. I was thinking about it, not so much the Camino as you know, I've done some ultra marathons, but nothing longer than, you know, nothing 28 days plus. But even if I'm driving to pick up my kids from school, there are times in my car, there are times when I'm accelerating. There are times when I'm decelerating. There are times when yeah. I'm moving more quickly. There are times when I'm moving more slowly. There are times when I'm stopped completely because I'm waiting at a traffic light or I'm in traffic behind somebody else. That's part of the journey, right? The journey yeah. is not linear in terms of yeah. how fast or how quickly I'm moving at all times. Yeah. It's highly variable. And yeah. so even the metaphor of going to the grocery store, picking up your kids or driving to work, is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. That yeah. And we're, we're in a state of change all the time. I'm moving from one place to another. I'm literally changing location. But I don't think about it as consequential change, but it is. No. It's a change yeah. in state and location. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's funny to see if, if, if you are walking in the same way as the marathon, you're, you're not thinking about kilometer 41. No, nope. you think how will I get to five and then to ten? So you make shorter steps, which are much more easy to understand and to feel by human beings. Because if we look too far, it can become overwhelming, and that's what I see a lot after COVID. That a lot of people are completely overwhelmed by what they should do and what they should experience and. We tried to get those three years into one year extra and, and it's not working. So all of the mental issues are that we communicate about change and we need to change and we don't take time uh, and give attention to people what, what they really need. So I'm, I'm always careful with the word change because it, it can push people to a limit that we don't want to have. And I can't see three years ahead. I can't see one year ahead. So if I know what I'm going to do the coming four or five weeks or two months, that, that's more than enough for me. And then I will trust the leadership that they will help me to get to that next level in, in development. That's the, yeah. Go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I wanted to say that's the way I like to have a look at it. And that's what I tell in my speeches that do one step at, at a time. Uh, that's, that's 10 times easier for human beings, for their brains to, to see and to accept. Hmm. I mean, because I think that's, that's really interesting because what, what it has me thinking about is um, Timelines also, right? As we're thinking about how we can help facilitate that change. And oftentimes, especially if we're you know, hearkening back to our, our earlier back and forth about the we're seeing between stakeholder and shareholder models and in, in capitalism. And so in this case, too, you know, obviously the the very common business time metric is quarter, right? Like what's what's happening next quarter, you know, especially for for shareholders. And so this is interesting just to think about like both as we draw from development language. Um, in positive psychology and facilitating that change, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, or do you set expectations of time? Like, so again, I think patience is part of the other part of it is this, like, do we, are we thinking it's a quarter? Is it like a year? Like how, how do we think about that? And how do employees kind of set expectations for what that might look like? Well, it, I think there will be a difference in the financial part of an organization. Quarterly is okay because then you can see in a short period of time, what's going to happen. If you set up, expectations then you should have a look at what can we achieve in one year time what will be the development in that time and if you set that picture this is where we would love to come in 12 months time 
but let's see how we develop and how we make the next steps. Then you give much more trust and autonomy to the people. And I think trust is one of the most important words to use in our business. People need to trust us. If they don't trust us, they're not going to be engaged. They're not going to run for us. So I think to create trust, it's not about punishing. If you don't get to that end of that quarterly with more EBITDA and more profit and more you need to look at, okay, this is what we want to achieve in 12 months' time. What do you need to get there? And how can I support you? Because this is what the company likes to achieve. But then you give trust and you ask questions instead of telling people what to do. Um, even if the outcome is the same, it's better for human beings to be asked a question than to be told what to do. Mm. I'm not a robot. I'm not a machine. I'm a human being and I want to be acknowledged for it. Mm. it I, I do have to say, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm, I just keep thinking about the fact that by training you, you have a law degree and that you were working in public security and that at least from an American context feels heavily bureaucratic. <laughs> when we think about yeah. government institutions and structures, it feels heavily impersonal, heavily bureaucratic kind of detached. And here you are talking about these very empathic, high emotional intelligence, kind of positive psychology concepts. So how do you go from a heavily bureaucratic kind of profession to highly emotional intelligence, empathic um, yeah. development where you are right now? Well, I, I think that in in the, the midst of the 90s, I've I acknowledge that I was working in a very bureaucratic environment and that I was taking care of people who were unemployed, disabled, couldn't work, uh, were sitting at home. Instead of looking at how can we help people not to get into that situation? And that's what we call prevention and with a new word, amplification. Let's amplify the people who are green, who can work to get to the next step. So that took for me about four or five years to leave the law and bureaucracy behind and go into positive psychology. And, and we have two great professors in the free uh, in the Netherlands who are experts in positive psychology, Shelfly Bakker and Demaruti. They are well, well known in the whole world. Uh, they are uh, teaching at Harvard and MIT and, and nobody knew them in the Netherlands. And I was so surprised that we have the, the, the high-ranked positive psychologist uh, and we don't know them. And I was intrigued by their message that it's about energy resources and demands at work and engagement um, as an opposite of burnout. Um, and then I thought, yeah, I see a lot of people with burnout, but we do nothing to prevent that they can burn out. And that's silly. Mm. That's a waste of money and a, a waste of human beings. So, yeah, it took, took some years to acknowledge that. On the other hand, I'm still an expert in law, in labor law. So I still understand what's going on, but I like to add something extra to it and, and to keep them going. Hmm. Yeah, that seems like an important part too. In terms of how, how do we, I guess as, as I, I'm thinking about this is like, how do we also bring other thinkers into it. So they, I mean, I think it's an important role for consultants, right? Because often, oftentimes organizations will bring a consultant on board because they know they lack either a certain perspective or something is not working. They're not sure why. So this is an interesting example of, of even in this case where you've got like two, uh, two positive psychology scholars that are doing, you know, global work, but are only known in certain areas or not, not quite known in the Netherlands. So uh, I guess, I mean, how much do you see your role as educator, you know, as part of this too, like facilitator, but also educator? Um, I, I am uh, I am an educator. Uh, I do a lot of training workshops. I do a lot of 
meetings with people. And if I'm honest, I love to be more on stage than being a consultant. But even as a consultant, I do a lot of workshops. Um, so, yeah, I, I love to tell the stories. Um, I, I call myself Stentor, and Il Stentore is Latin for storyteller. Mm. Um, so normally I say I'm a Stentor, not a consultant. Mm. Uh, I give advice, which is more educational than telling what to do. Um, so if I tell my story, if I give advice and people don't follow it, I don't mind. Well, as long as they pay me, but it, it, it's not my role to tell them what to do. I can advise them to go in a certain direction. And of course, it's, it's an obligation for me to take care that they have enough uh, knowledge to go that way and insights to go that way. And that's the consultancy part that you look at all the figures, all the processes and that kind of stuff. And then I give advice and tell them, well, this is what I see. This can be your next step. I recommend mm -hmm. you to, to do this. And then, then my job stops. So I'm not involved in implementation. That's, that's not who I am. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and, and it's an important part too, actually, because it frees up a little bit of the capacity to both storytell, um, yep. but then also not have to, I guess, I mean, also actually on a consultant level, that's nice because you can then do the storytelling part or if then if you wanted to do an extra service or another service, right, then it can be the implementation follow through piece too. So even segmentation of services, I think, I mean, this obviously sounds it's orthogonal to what you're saying, but I think it's an important thing as, as people think about being consultants also to come back to our self-employment part of this too, like yeah. you offer your services matters, right? And so oftentimes we see a mistake that people have when they first go into consulting is they put everything into one package, right? Or offering, then they end up getting paid too little for too much work. So even yeah. at this point, this is actually smart of like, how can you segment your, your offerings? Oh, well? I, 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 when I started, I did bronze, silver, gold, like the, the metals. Mm. Uh, you have mm. the small package and it has a certain price. Then you have the gold, which is all inclusive. And in between I did silver, was, which was about 80% of the gold, but two times as much as the bronze. Right. Mm. And what you see is people choose silver. Yeah, it's behavioral economics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you want to start as a consultant, do it that way. Yeah. And, and because then people will like you more and some will go for gold and others will say, no, 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 bronze will be enough. And, and you know, okay, then you won't get the rest of the package deal. I'm not going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that saves time and money. I just That's did right. that when I got my car washed. There was three packages. And I picked the middle one and I knew I was doing it at the time I was doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every time. Every time we do the same. Thank goodness we're pretty predictable. It makes our jobs as social scientists. And I'm including you in that conversation much easier. Yeah. It's like, you know, as, and we go back to the idea of change. As much as people change, as much as times change, as much as situations change, we're still people. You know, and there's still mm -hmm. like certain human needs. And you talked about positive psychology. Adam went to Brandeis where Maslow mm -hmm. founded the psychology yeah. department. Yeah, so, right. you know, it comes out into the day for people looking for yeah. certain things. We're looking for certain things at work. And, uh, and you know, as that, as that develops, not changes, but as develops with Gen Z and Gen, Gen Alpha, leaders have to develop as well. Otherwise, or you don't have to. But if you don't, the outcomes are going to be that you're going to be a less attractive place for, for the top talent to go to. And you're not going to have as much fun yeah. in, your, in your role. Mm -hmm. Let's have better places to work. You know, why not? Right. It's like, <laughs> let's do good and feel good. You know, it's not, not, it sounds like it's not a, not a crazy order, right? It's just like the, the work is in reconfiguring existing systems and paradigms, Yeah, which is just a small thing to do, right? Just changing someone's paradigm is very small. I think we should have a second meeting. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should do that too. Always because, uh, I, I also do think it comes back to the power of the social scientists and soapbox yeah. a little bit, as we say that, you know, there was a great quote. I always often go, I use from Simon Sinek, which is 
100% of customers are people, 100% of employees are people. If you don't understand people, you don't understand business. And I'm like, this is what we do for a living. We yeah. understand, we study people. We try to understand them. We understand what makes them tick, what, yeah. what their desires are, what their challenges are. Yeah. And translating that into action in a positive way in organizations, whether from the individual cognitivistic or the, you know, group social level is what we're all about. So I think a second meeting would be perfect. You can tell us more stories about the Camino because that sounds fascinating too. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love to. I would love to. Um, right, well, thanks so much, Paul, for everything. Um, well, I it, was, your time. it was very nice having this uh, lovely conversation. And that's why I say I, I think we have enough material to, uh, to have another talk soon. Sounds good. Look forward sounds to good. it. Cool. Many thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. We would like to thank Paul Truall for coming on and talking about his approach to employee experience in Positive Psych. And of course, Gen X. You can find out more about his work and Andare in our show notes. And as always, we want to hear from you, our dear listeners. Here's a couple of questions to kind of walk away with this episode. How can we shift organizations to create environments that are premised around employee well-being? You know, what's stopping orgs from doing this and what might that look like in your opinion? And... How could we incentivize or what could we do to incentivize more stakeholder models of business, especially here in the US? We can obviously think globally and that may be actually one of the, the important pieces that we discussed in this episode. But in your perspective too, what can we do to better incentivize more stakeholder models of business? Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. As always, thanks so much for listening to Experience by Design. We just passed the big lucky number 13,000 barrier. Ring. Yeah, I know. 13,000 downloads. And if you think about the number of listeners, it's probably at least uh, 20 times that. So thanks so much. And we continue to bring this content because you like and appreciate it so much. So we always like to hear your feedback on the episodes that we are giving to you. And if you are an experienced design company or professional looking to increase your profile, please do reach out to us about sponsoring an episode, appearing on an episode, and seeing in what other ways we might be able to work together. You can also show your support and appreciation by buying us a coffee through our Buy Us a Coffee link on our experiencexdesign.com site. And make sure you also share all the feedback you have for us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. You can also subscribe at our website to stay on top of all of the EXD news. We've had a flurry of uh, subscriptions that have been marked as spam, but I, I think I prefer to believe that you're real and not just spamming us. Yeah. But if you're spam you're accounts, we'll, we'll take you too. It's okay. We're, we don't discriminate against bots. Considering they're going to take over everything anyway, we might as well include them in the community right now. True. Fair point. And, and with that, folks, everybody stay well, be kind, be well, be safe, be engaged, be positive. Remember Gen X, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design.